Hello, welcome to the High Quality Fun Podcast. Today we talk to Anna and Christy about how dog sledding took them from Wisconsin to Alaska, where they have collectively competed in the Iditarod 26 times. We talk about the love they have for each of their dogs and the ebbs and flows that go into mushing in the unforgiving climate of Alaska as they prepare for this year's race. Stay tuned and I hope you enjoy this episode. stumbled onto your account just kind of looking at the Iditarod and saw that you guys have been doing some races been following you to you know through a race you recently did um we kind of talked a little bit yesterday and I got to hear a little, little bit of your backstory uh it's kind of cool that you guys are from Wisconsin where I'm from Michigan so we were very close to each other uh, in proximity when I went to college up in the upper peninsula um to start off I mean why don't you guys tell us how how you got from Wisconsin all the way out to Alaska and got into this dog sled racing thing. Uh, thanks for having us. Um, my name's Christy and this is Anna and together we own and operate single, single sled, sled dog, dog racing. <laughs> and we were born and raised in Northern Wisconsin and our neighbor and by neighbor in the Midwest, she was five miles away from us, um, had sled dogs. And we thought that'd be a fun thing to kind of get into when we were growing up the movie iron will had just came out and we were super into that our veterinarian had some sled dogs and gave us our first ride so we our were, guidance counselor at school had a few sled dogs yeah, so, so it, was, it was around yeah and there's just um some middle distance races in the midwest so it's, it's not only an alaskan sport even though it's alaska state sport yeah i know that i uh up in my college they had the copper dog 150 um i don't know what all what all is in wisconsin but i assume that your mentor or whatever you called her do you say ken, counselor or mentor she uh she At probably least it was our, our friend and mentor yeah okay okay but keep going i just want to throw that in there oh yeah yeah like christy mentioned wisconsin has a lot of um sprint racing such as short and fast racing and then minnesota and michigan each have some longer distance races that are like the bear grease which is up to like around 350 miles more, of a, more <laughs> of a marathon yeah and then like like the car 150 miles and like also in the up they have the up 200 which is a 200 mile race and a few other things the can-am over on the east coast and stuff and yeah and then over on the the west side in the lower 48 montana has and has their race to the sky and Sealy Lake. So there's that there. But then Alaska is Alaska feels like if you want to have the most opportunities for racing and to compete against a lot of people and just to see some really amazing country, uh Alaska's like, you know, the Mecca of mushing, I would say. And home to the ultra marathon of yeah. mushing, which is the Iditarod, and that's a thousand miles long. And there used to be one other race called Yukon Quest that was also a thousand miles long, but and that was between it went from Alaska and into Canada. But I'd like to joke and say that Alaska and Canada kind of got a divorce with that race, and they have joint custody of the race, so they have each have their own individual races, one in Alaska and one in um, Canada now. Hopefully, they can work things out and and bring that one back because that was also a very epic event. Yeah, but what how we ended up in Alaska is just um, after high school, we joined the Army National Guard and we got to do a lot there. We went, um, our unit got 
activated and that kind of stuff. And then after we were done with all that, we didn't know what to do. So we went to University of Wisconsin River Falls for a few semesters, but didn't know what we wanted to do. But then kind of always, always felt ourselves being drawn back to mushing. Um, and after kind of looking around of places that were hiring handlers and a handler is someone who like assists a musher in their work and training and taking care of the dogs, handling the dogs. That's kind of where that term came from. So we looked at different places and kennels that were looking for helpers. And so we kind of told our mom and dad, we're going to go to Alaska. And they're like, whoa, whoa, slow down a little bit. You've never been there and that kind of stuff. So then like, is it there some place you could find to stay stateside? We looked at a couple places in the Michigan area, but but still we're like, oh, what do we do? What do we do? And um, we're still looking to make a little money or something. So we ended up working for a touring business in, of all places, California. And at the ski resorts there, they would give sled dog rides. So we gave sled dog rides there. And it was a fun way to share the sport with people, but it just left you wanting more. Just like you weren't just like you weren't satisfied with only going like four miles at a time. And then we started to kind of fan out to look for more from there. Had you, had you, you hadn't gone to Alaska at this point. You just, you kind of said, this is where we have to be if, if we want to really get into this. Yeah, we kind of felt that way. The first time I ever went to Alaska was I was with the company we were working for and they needed to buy more dogs. And I got to the opportunity to go up with the owner to buy and take care of the dogs that, that they were purchasing. And we met um, Dean Osmar and he won the, I did around 1984 and he was watching me work with the dogs. You got to, to run the dogs that day. He's like, I really like how you are with the dogs. He's like, would you be interested in, you know, coming up to Alaska and, and doing this for real? And I was like, oh my gosh. And I pretty much turned to my then employer and said, I quit. <laughs> and then at the time uh, it was in the, the summer and I were living in a tent in the Sierra Nevada mountains, working at a horse ranch. Um, and that's what we did in the summer, horses in the summer and dogs in the winter. It was a pretty great gig for, for, you know, two young girls. So yeah, the, people love the outdoors. Yeah, so pretty much got back to Alaska and, and told Anna, I was like, hey, I got a job for us. We're moving to Alaska. And Anna was all on board. She's like, this sounds perfect. So we packed up everything we own on our backs and, and moved up to Alaska with a stranger that I had met all of two hours. <laughs> so our mom was a little bit like, oh, wow, you're moving to Alaska, a place that, well, Anna's never been. You know nobody up there to work and live in the middle of nowhere in Alaska. Okay. <laughs> but it all it all worked out great. And Dean and his wife, Sarah, were super good to us and um, gave us a lot of amazing opportunities. And it just built the foundation for, for what we do and what we are today. When you went up there, was it in the the winter or summer or was it long days or long nights i assume winter if you're going up there to help out with the dogs um no it was actually in the summertime and we can run the dogs on atv four-wheelers and we actually ran them along the cook inlet near the ocean in the sand so on the, was, beach. On the beach yeah <laughs> and uh, alaska doesn't in that neck of the woods didn't get very warm i mean a summer day might be high 60s and maybe even low 70s so the dogs can um, run short distances and pull an ATV four-wheeler. So that was my exposure to um, Alaska for the first time was in the summer. And I was, you know, with the daylight, I was thought it was amazing. At six o'clock at night when the news came on, I thought it was, or 10 o'clock when the news came on, I thought it was six o'clock. And yeah, you just wanted to stay up all night doing anything and everything because it was still daylight. 
Yeah, and then when Chrissy came back to get me, we finished our um, stint at the horse stable and then packed up all our stuff and came up in um, the beginning of October. And we're still training dogs in the four wheels and that kind of thing. And growing up in the Midwest, you know, no mountains. And it's just to be like pin dropped with mountains surrounding you and the ocean is right there. Just everything is just gorgeous. It's like, wow, I can't believe that the, you know, we're in Alaska, we're here and that kind of thing. So it's just really just a whirlwind kind of experience and just dropped into it. And it was, it's, it's been awesome. Obviously we stayed. I think for people, it's either you love it and you have this desire, like I gotta be here or it's like, no, not for me. It's there's no, like, I feel like in between it's like, yeah. you like it or you don't. Yeah. I was, I kind of hinted at this when we talked yesterday, but we went up there for a wedding. There's actually a couple of my, a, a couple that we were, they live up the road from us and they said it was cheaper to get married in Alaska versus here and we're like oh yeah screw it we might as well go we've never been to alaska but the the issue quote unquote issue is that we have two kids under three and we've never taken <laughs> a plane we we try to travel with them we try to um you know not let that discomfort cause us problems um they did pretty good we flew out there and it was gorgeous it was uh i think it was august so we were still in like the sunny time um you know 60s like you were saying but yeah it's just like compared to michigan compared to wisconsin where there's no mountains or anything you just got these gorgeous mountain backdrops um we did a we did halibut fishing we did the alaskan railroad to kind of get around um went up to denali saw a bunch of moose what was the last thing we did oh we did a, a fjords tour so we got to like oh, take cool. the boat out and yeah it was cool um i i would have to see it in the winter because uh like we were talking to some of the halibut guys and they're saying yeah we get the hell out of here you know uh yeah. what, is, what is the halibut city called um homer yeah homer the place pretty much shuts down in the winter and like everyone just uproots and i think he went and did skiing or something uh during that time but yeah it was gorgeous and i i totally get the draw to it i could see a lot of people just landing there and never wanting to leave again um so uh yeah I, I wanted to actually get into this you mentioned the four-wheeling uh i was watching some of your videos yesterday and i thought that was something worth getting into with our listeners so in the summer you have or winter you have your dog sled that you can actually hook up with your brakes and everything and then in the summer you still have to train all these dogs so you can race right uh and you just hook it to a four-wheeler that you toss in neutral is that kind of the promise behind it yeah um they don't run our training, I think our serious training probably runs from August to April. And we are stuck on the four wheelers. It's not my favorite place to be, but on the four wheelers all summer. And we do maybe one or two, two, yeah, two to three runs a week with the dogs in the summer. It's all based on what the temperatures are. And they pull us on the, the four wheelers. And yeah, it's put it in neutral and, and they pull us. Um, it's a great way to get the dogs out running until we get snow. And I think um, years ago, it was a real game changer when somebody decided, well, let's, you know, not just the wheeled carts, but be able to have them on the four wheeler. They, you can run much bigger teams, longer distances, different places. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a mandatory piece of equipment if you're going to race and train a, a long distance dog team. 
Yeah, and it all looks and feels the same as far as like it's just take away the sled and put add four wheelers. So the dogs are still set up the same way, and it's a great way to start um, working with your young leaders and getting handling and hooking up and harnessing experience on your youngest dogs and that kind of thing. And just like yeah, Chrissy said to start to get them in shape because kind of like kids have days, you know, the summer off. Our dogs kind of have the summer off. There's a lot of one-on-one stuff we take dogs hiking and. And that kind of thing but like yeah serious training starts in august and it's also not unusual mm -hmm. to put a team of dogs on a snowmobile and like try to multitask and groom your trail at the same time and then have a large team of dogs on the snowmobile to find the trail and kind of set the track and then um pull that machine behind uh the whole team and then also there's a few roads in alaska that are closed in the winter and then when they get just enough snow we hook dogs to the front of vehicles like pickup trucks and have 24 or something and given they're not pulling a, a one-ton truck you have to you know feather the gas and keep in a low gear and, and help them along but um uh, mushers are very resourceful when it comes to training their dogs and getting the miles on them that the dogs need and and the dogs love it and they don't they just want to pull and run they don't care what you put a you know spaceship behind them if they pull it they try to do it uh does the i don't know anything about these sleds is there a steering mechanism to it like i know you can brake and everything but you're really relying on the dogs to steer everything so when you're on that four-wheeler you just kind of let the handles do their own thing or use it to um, guide you them have to, yeah you have this well they're on voice command so to turn left we say ha to turn right we say g to keep going we say straight ahead and that kind of thing but you do have to steer the four-wheeler because it's just uh, tied to the front of the frame right. of the four-wheeler so you have to steer it with your hands like that but with the sled you you're driving the sled as far as you're using your weight and your legs and applying brake at certain times to help guide it and that kind of thing so you're not just standing back there looking right. at the alaskan scenery you are driving the sled you're actively driving it and you know everybody every person has tipped their sled over and when you do tip the sled over you drag the dogs don't necessarily stop and so are you okay you tipped over they drag you and then you have to struggle to find your snow hookers which is like an anchor that to stop you and stop them and flip your sled up and then continue to keep going and if you in the event let go of your sled because kind of like rule number one never let go of your sled yeah but if you're you know going you know 12 miles an hour towards a tree and there's no nothing you can do yeah you should let go yeah and sometimes it just you're trying and you just accidentally you know you're trying to drive it you tip over you're dragging you're doing the best you can and if you do lose it the dogs will leave you they just keep going yeah all they find is like oh that got a lot easier and they just go faster yeah uh -huh. so then you're walking down the trail because you can never run to catch them so you walk down the trail and the sled usually the snow hooks will you know bounce around and then they'll anchor and then you'll get to the team but they just love doing what they do so they <laughs> they'll leave you behind that's hilarious so so when you got there were you working for this this racer that you met and then what how did you go from doing that to actually opening your own your own your own racing kennel is that is that the right term for it yeah I'd call it a, a racing kennel uh, it was it was a long journey, and we took the opportunity to work for and learn from several different mushers because there's a thousand different ways to um, operate a kennel, and everybody does things a little bit differently. So we were taking little tidbits from everyone we worked for and everyone we met and kind of putting that in the memory bank for when 
and Anna and I would always say it's just, oh, when we have our own dogs, you know, we're going to do it this way and we'll try this and stuff like that. So we got to finally got to that point where we got a few few dogs. Um, Dean actually gave us a, a wonderful opportunity, opportunity, and it's a really funny story. Um, Dean is notorious for doing pranks and making bets. So him and Anna ended up having a bet of when Iditarod started. And Iditarod always starts in the first weekend of March, always, except on one occasion it started at the last weekend of February because it was coinciding with the basketball tournament up in Nome. And Anna had said said that it started on our birthday. And Dean's like, well, when's your birthday? And Anna's like, well, February 24th. And he's like, no, that can't be because it always starts the first weekend of March. So they bantered back and forth a little bit. And he's like, okay, let's make a bet. And um, I forget what Dean wanted if he would have won. He he was made a simple side. He's like, I just want, uh, you have to, you know, make me hot chocolate and stuff like that. I was, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, I was like, and I was like, oh, he's like, okay, deal. I'll buy you a cup of coffee. And he's like, okay. And if you win, Anna's like, I want a dog. And Dean's kind of, eyes got big but at the same time being very arrogant he's like deal because he knew he was right <laughs> so they called rick swenson and rick swenson um won the iditarod four times and was basically a history book about the race and so they called uh, rick swenson he answered and he's like rick it's dean he's like got a question for you he's like um what year did iditarod uh, start in february and i forget the year i think it was like 70 something yeah 76 or something he's like oh it started in this because of the basketball tournament and dean basically hung up on rick at that point because he was wrong <laughs> and he looked over at anna and his eyes got kind of small he's like which dog <laughs> and um anna was like oh got real excited and talking 100 miles an hour about her favorite dog and stuff like that she's like okay here's what we're gonna do he's like i'm gonna give you a pregnant female and you can have pick of that litter and you can raise the puppy so he gave us a pregnant female that spring he bred one to anna's favorite dog and um which was a really good breeding we got to raise a litter of puppies and then we got to pick uh, a dog to keep out of there so and we still have him today he's going to be 16 years old and his name is jonah and he was a phenomenal dog yeah he is a phenomenal dog he did um multiple iditarods with me won races with us yukon quest did qualifiers with us to get to iditarod so he's um, a real real awesome uh prize in that that event <laughs> That's great. Was was that kind of the kickoff to uh, once you got that dog? Did that kind of set the wheels in motion to opening the kennel? Yeah, that was our you know first dog that we called our own, and then um, working with other kennels, we you know it's like you know, a lot of times we end up getting like pups because I mean they're the value of sled dogs change as they learn things so then you'll have pups their price goes off of well, what's their bloodline how did their parents do how did their grandparents do that kind of thing so then you kind of that's how much this is and then it goes up from there as like well this dog you know it has finished you know four 300 mile races or this dog has finished the Iditarod this dog is a lead dog lead dogs are always the most expensive and the price goes up so then a lot of times because we we don't we didn't have a whole lot um, and it's just an expensive sport. We were getting young dogs and other people's kind of kickbacks. Like we got a couple older dogs um, to, that were experienced, but maybe not so much like high quality racers to help learn how the other ones learn and that kind of thing. So we slowly started to build from there. And um, now we have 34 dogs. That's wild. And that's, that's pretty much what you do full time now, right? You, you manage that. Are they all your dogs or are you actually housing? Dogs yeah. All 34 people? that we have. Oh, 
yeah, all 34 that we have are our dogs. Um, and it is a full-time job, just like a farmer or a rancher. Mm -hmm. um, anyone who owns a kennel of multiple animals of any kind, it is a full-time job, whether it's, you know, making you earnings or not. You The animals always come first. They're the first thing that get taken care of with feeding and cleaning and care and attention. And then your rest of your life comes second. So um, the uh, mushing for us really, uh, not for many people, is a money-making sport. Um, so we do supplement with other work to, to get by with things. So we do a lot of seasonal work. So in the summer we do construction and landscaping and that kind of thing, which works out great with the building season in Alaska and for especially like landscaping and that kind of shuts down um, in October cause you can't push frozen ground so well with the dozer and that kind of thing. Um, so it's great because that's when things are getting super busy training the dogs and it's hard for just the two of us to maintain all the animal care and all the training while maintaining a full-time job. We do some part-time work helping out another kennel and that kind of thing, but otherwise the dogs are a full-time job. Yeah. 34 dogs. I, I can't even imagine. I got, I got one dog and two kids and it's a full-time gig. <laughs> I'll take dogs over kids. Uh, <laughs> Just out of curiosity, like, is it mostly landscaping that you do when you say construction? What do you what do you work on? I asked because we built this house and we did like 70% of the work ourselves. Uh, Chelsea, my wife, she was kind of the the planner. She was pregnant at the time, just kind of making the schedule, making sure we had everything lined up. And I was like grunt on YouTube trying to figure <laughs> out how the hell to wire a house and how to do plumbing and everything. And that was very rewarding, but so much work. Yeah, we, we start, started out um, our summer gigs while well, it was commercial fishing and uh, and building. So we were just uh, general laborers on a crew, you know, framing and, and everything like that. Um, and then, but now we've kind of leaned towards more doing the um, kind of foundation work when we, okay. for uh, landscaping, clearing land to have, you know, um, to build a house and then installing a lawn on existing um building so that's kind of yeah, driveways like said foundations and yeah that's more of the work with dirt now instead of wood we didn't we paid someone to do the excavation to kind of shape the land but we did all of the foundation and we hired out the rough so you it seems like you guys are doing a lot of the stuff that we actually avoided um yeah very cool uh and then how did you, I assume that the Iditarod was always something that you wanted to do. Like when did, when did you first dive into that? And just because I know nothing about this event, I know it's like a thousand miles. Can you maybe give us the the short and sweet of what this event is? And then maybe we can talk into, you know, everything that went into racing it. I know you guys have also done it, what, 17 times, 12 times? Yeah, I've done it 12 times and Christy's done it 14 times. Okay. Man, that's wild. <laughs> yeah. So the Iditarod started in 1974, and it's a 1,000-mile race that goes from Anchorage to Nome. And it's they say it is to honor the serum run, which was to, for the diphtheria epidemic. But in all reality, it was to preserve the sled dog. Um, society was progressing in a way that mushers were getting squeezed out of uh, places in Alaska and being replaced by the snow machine. And Joe Reddington came up with the, the idea for this epic race to 
um, you know, preserve the sled dog and keep that that breed around and that way of life around. And it's it's still very prevalent today up here in Alaska. Um, they say it's a thousand mile, uh, one thousand forty nine miles long, and in actuality, it varies. It's usually like nine hundred eighty five to nine hundred ninety five miles long, depending on um, snow conditions, ice conditions on the Bering Sea, and 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 winter in general. So, um, and then there's also a northern route and a southern route on odd and even years. But for the most part, that's that's what the Iditarod is. You start with sixteen dogs. And whoever gets to, to know them first wins. Yeah, it's a it's neat for our sport. It doesn't matter what gender you are. We're all on the same playing field. It's, there's no women's division. There's no men's division. It's whoever has the best dog team is going to get to know yeah, them first. No age group yep, it doesn't it's, matter. Rookies yeah. are against people that have run it for 20 years. And it's just, yeah, it's pretty old-fashioned that way. That's cool. Is it? I assume there's like tiered launches too. You go every hour or something like that. Yep, it's uh, two minute intervals, and then um, there's three areas of mandatory rest that you have to take, and one of them is a full 24 hours. You have to stop someplace on the tra anywhere on the trail at a checkpoint. You have to take an eight hour rest in White Mountain, the second to the last checkpoint, and then you get to choose to take another eight hour rest anywhere you want on the Yukon River. Um, you cannot run this race without adding more rest than the mandatory rest. So you're stopping in these other checkpoints or stopping and camping along on the trail to give the dogs the rest that they need. And uh, are those, each of those checkpoints, are they, is it like a base? You can go in there, they have all the amenities that you need for you and the dog, or is it just like a jack in the woods? Um, um, yeah, most of them are villages. Um, in yeah. the interior of Alaska, and there's a couple checkpoints that are just kind of pop-up checkpoints, like, um, for example, Iditarod and Cripple. They're just an Eagle Island, um, and then uh, the checkpoint of Ofer is just someone's hunting camp. So it, they kind of only exist during the race, but our supplies are sent out two weeks before the race starts. So we'll send out around two thousand pounds of dog food and things like that. So and they're distributed among the checkpoints through Iditarod's um, Air Force. And so those things are there when you get to the checkpoint, but, uh, and then there's veterinary at every checkpoint, there's um, race marshal and all that kind of thing at each checkpoint, but the musher takes care of their team. There is no help taking care of the team. No, no, pit, no, no pit crew, nobody's helping you feed and bed them down and massage and, um, take care of feet and booties and cook for them. It's that one musher is doing everything for their team. And there are no roads to Nome. The only way you can get to Nome is by dog team in the winter, fly or snowmobile in the winter. And then there's a handful of uh, people that ride the fat tire snow bikes or ski to Nome. Um, but that's a different kind of race. <laughs> yeah, the distance between checkpoints, depending on how they route it, it can be as short as like, what's the shortest distance a couple of like. 20, like 20 miles or it can be as far as like 90 and there's about 20 checkpoints along the race and now you you guys are racing these at the same time you have enough dogs that you can actually divvy them up and do the race i assume you aren't allowed to even help each other out um, rules say that mushers can help other mushers but um 
we'll check in with each other, say how you're doing, that kind of thing. But we both are doing our own management of our team. Okay. There has to be some competitive spirit between you two on that too, I assume. You trying to beat each other's ass? No, I don't I don't think so. We have, you know, entered the race in the same year and, and not traveled the trail together, but it's definitely way more fun to to do it together. Yeah, because because we raise and train all of the dogs together, I'm interested in how Chrissy's team is doing just as much as the team I'm driving. Right. So this we the dogs aren't aren't just like a snowmobile. It's like how's it running kind of thing. You love that dog. You love that team, and obviously you have a family member driving them, and you love that person. So this is a huge invested interest in just how is it going and that kind of thing. And so as far as being competitive, we just want each of us to have a great race. But when it comes down to you know who's beating who, it's really just we both take pride in it because it's their our dogs. Yeah, and even we've been asked this before, even. It's like, well, what if, you know, it was right there on front, front Street coming down to the finish line and you're neck and neck and you're like, you're going to hold hands across the finish line. It's, it, we're like, no, but we're not going <laughs> to like throw down the gauntlet and, you know, forget the fact that we're sisters at that point. Both of us without communicating, will look at each other and quickly think back of the last, you know, 990 miles and think, who earned this? Who's whose team led the most? Who's who was there for the other person emotionally support or you know who you know actually deserves to win this? And even if like my team was a little bit faster at that point, and if I were to look back and be like, man, you know, Anna and her lead dog Drax led through that storm, and I don't think I would have made it through without her in front that way. I would get on my break and make sure that she would win the race. So that's that's how we would handle mm -hmm. something like that. I love it. Yeah. After a thousand miles or something like that, I, and, I feel like. Yeah, uh, it is really crazy. Sorry to interrupt, but no, you're good. the race came down to one second. Um, can you imagine racing over 10, 12 days and coming, it comes down to beating someone in one second. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, <laughs> it's been that close before. And they actually had to make the choice that year, whether it was the person and their sled that crossed the finish line or the lead dog that crossed the finish line first. And it's all came down to whoever's lead dog knows crossed the finish line first won the race. So that was a very exciting. Yeah, they kind of went to, well, with horse racing, it's whichever horse's nose crosses the line first. So they're like, that's what we do. Mm -hmm. I think it's the same with uh, race cars too. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just basing this off of like whatever race movies I've seen. I don't actually know. Um, yeah, so I want to I want to dive into like an actual Iterod race. Like, how many days does it normally take you? What are you What are you guys doing during the day? Uh, how much are you like? What What's your sleep routine? What's your your eating routine? Um, I'm just like curious about the logistics of the whole event day after day. Yeah, it's a long time to be have your mind in the mindset of racing because the the people finish in as short as eight days and 20 hours or all the way up to like 14 days and 20 hours. So there's a big span of ability in that range. Um, Chrissy and I have finished right around, it takes us about 10 days when we've been running it. Um, and that's the whole time clock. It counts your stop time and everything like that. That's how long it took you. So you're traveling over a hundred miles a day um, or right around a hundred miles a day. And, 
as far as the you just get you have a routine dogs love routine so if you're consistent in that they rest quicker they rest easier and that kind of thing so as you're running and going you might run around about six hours and then you'll probably maybe rest for like four hours depending on how your schedule is laid out and you feel free to jump at any time and um as far as your sleep routine we are constantly sleep deprived when we're racing dogs because your number one is to take care of them and then last is whatever the musher gets to do and if you want to remain competitive then you can't take a you know four hour nap at every checkpoint you got to keep keep moving if you want to keep up with the front and so we're, you might get like a 45 minute nap when you stop for that four hours with the dogs so you might run the like i said about six hours and you may stop for four hours you get less than an hour nap because the rest of your time is caring for them cooking for them repacking your sled and getting ready to go so you're always sleep deprived we're you hallucinating all that kind of stuff and as far as like eating for the dogs around the chair where you cook for them um so we have a cook pot that will boil water melt snow get them a hot meal and that kind of thing and then you can throw into that boiling water like you know uh maybe a vacuum sealed burrito or something like that which uh sometimes is good other times you're just eating quick things like having you know smoked salmon or trail mix or something like that um a lot of that stuff is what we eat is what you can eat when it's frozen um but yeah so much of your routine just goes off of taking care of the dogs first and then what uh can you maybe explain the sled itself uh i don't i don't know like all the mechanisms on it what do you have in there uh storage wise is there multiple pockets and stuff like a like you'd have on like a backpacking backpack or how, how yeah, much does it weigh I don't, I don't know yeah it's an interesting way to put it it's kind of like a giant backpack and the sleds evolved over the years to where it actually has a seat where you can sit down on it and i was opposed to that idea for the longest time number one they they nicknamed it the old man sled and then number two i thought that would encourage laziness because we are really active on the back of the sled not only from steering and driving the sled but we call it pedaling so you push it like a skateboard to help the dog team and then when your legs get tired from running and pedaling we carry ski poles with us and you like your nordic skiing you push with the ski pole so you're trying to help and help the dog team um not work so hard and i think the dogs work harder knowing that you're helping them they appreciate that and like i said oppose the idea of the the sled because i thought it was encouraged laziness but on the contrary it did not it actually helped you feel more rested when you got to the checkpoint because if you could sit down and just get off your feet for five minutes and just take a little bit of a break stretch a little bit and then get back into it you feel much better arriving at the checkpoint so that's really handy with that kind of sled and the other thing is it helps distribute the weight and um how you pack your sled instead of having everything up front of you like a shopping cart you have another compartment behind you like a trunk where you can store more things and just easier to get to easier to um sort and find gear and it was just i wish i would have got onto the old man sled sooner than i did and in inside this sled, we carry mandatory gear there's a a list of stuff you have to have with you at all times and you have to have the ability to carry dogs too sometimes 
if you're running and a dog doesn't look like they're moving quite right or if they get sick or tired you need to be able to carry the dogs with you so um there's a compartment in the sled for that in case you kind of have to be a um i don't want to call it an ambulance but you know have a, a car seat <laughs> for the dog I yeah know. the sleds have evolved a lot from the traditional sleds are made of like all wood with a plastic screw to the bottom of the runners which is like the ski part um and they've evolved as you know technology has evolved these days there's hardly a piece of wood on a dog sled a lot of them have aluminum runners with quick change plastic. You slide it on, has a dovetail joint. You change the plastic out just like you wax a ski for different temperatures. There's different colors of plastic that do better in different snow surface conditions. And then there's, uh, um, like I said, aluminum runners. There's high molecular weight plastic on there that is strong and um, carbon fiber things, just really going for lightweight. And when you ask about how much a sled weighs, like um, a heavy sled will weigh probably like 65 pounds that's heavy but then these lightweight racing sleds that we have now are probably about 35 pounds and then our mandatory gear um probably is about um 100 pounds or so yeah 100 um, to 200 pounds it depends on the distances between checkpoints and how much um like fuel you need to carry for the dogs and by fuel i mean dog food so they're really carrying anything from like 250 to 300 pounds at any given time. Or yep. And plus the, the weight of the musher on there. Do they have saddlebags too? Like just for little things? No, they have, the dogs have a lot of clothes though. They have their harnesses. They all have booties. They have coats. Um, sometimes they wear these leggings and sometimes they'll wear, wear like a, a, a rough around their waist to help keep the cold air off of their flanks, those, you know, that thin skin on their legs. Uh, so they have a lot of things that they wear, but they don't carry their stuff. Okay. No, that's great. Uh, yeah. So we're, we're coming up towards the end of the time, but I want to leave, I want to leave these last 15 minutes just for you guys to tell any, any like particularly funny or struggling, strugglesome stories that you guys have. I'm sure you have a, a handbag full of, uh, stories that you always like to tell when you, when you reflect on this stuff. Oh, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's funny, um, our story and it's, Ann and I are the only twins and the only sisters to have run Iditarod. That's one of our little claim to fames there. But when we first came up to Alaska, had we, had we, as we had mentioned earlier, we were living in California and moving up here, we, we flew up to Alaska and we had it arranged to where Anna was going to go up there first and kind of get the, the compound established and, and start training the dogs. And I was going to arrive later. Well, circumstances changed. The ticket was already bought. And I was going to, I decided, and Anna and I decided together that, okay, Christy, you're going to go up there first. And the ticket was already bought. We're like, uh, you can see where this is going. Let's just switch IDs. So when I flew up there, I flew up as Anna and Anna stayed down as me. And for, I think, a couple months until Anna came up there and it was a, uh, it worked out just fine, super easy. <laughs> but it was funny one day Anna called me. She's like, "Well, sorry about that, but you got a ticket today. I got pulled over." <laughs> and I was like, "What? What did I do? How many license are off? Points are off my license? Like, I just had an expired um, license plate. I hadn't gotten my sticker put on there yet. I was like, okay, great. So I thought that was funny that we had had switched um, to come up here. And there's other twin shenanigan stories like 
our voices are very similar as you can hear in this podcast and our dog teams sometimes can't differentiate between who's calling what command. So we've been passing each other before and calling different commands and our dog teams are almost zigzagging up front of each other because they're not quite sure who to listen to at that point. Yeah. And the, the recently this fall, we were on a training run. Um, Christy and I have a lot of gear that's similar. Like we have the same color vest, the same pants, same everything. And we are gearing up to go and I grabbed my phone, Christy grabbed her phone so we could communicate out there and that kind of stuff. And uh, we're out running. And then like I picked up my phone and I was calling me and I was like, what, what is this? And it was, oh, Christy's calling me on my phone. It's just funny thing. Cause like on our wallpaper, on our phones, we both have a team picture of a dog team and stuff. So things like that is funny. And all of our dogs are microchipped. So you can scan them and like a number comes up to identify each dog because, and I did Rod, you cannot um, switch dogs. Once you start with 16, that's all you get. Um, so then the vets can scan to make sure, okay, this dog has not been switched out. It matches with their name and their um, number and everything like that. So we'll always joke with kids and we talk at schools and like, yeah, we got a microchip too. So we can't switch places out there and we're mushing. But as far as like, we've encountered so many extreme conditions out mushing, uh, we've we've been in as cold as 65 below zero ambient temperature. ambient temperature. We've been mushing in in the say in the rain. Um, you'll cross open water and that kind of thing. So we just we've come across wildlife moose are like everybody always. Oh, you see any bears and you're out mushing? It's like eh, we have seen them, but they're kind of hibernating, so they're not really a big deal. And wolves are around, but they're not like, you know, hunting you or anything like that. But moose are like the scariest animal you can come across because they will stomp you. They don't care. They are mean. Um, so, you know, the, as far as wildlife encounters, we've encountered them. And it's just Alaska is a wild place. And it's it's been really, really cool what we've been able to do up here with dogs. And the, we get asked, like, why do you why do you mush dogs? It sounds awful. You don't get to sleep. You're out there in the bitter cold. Um, you're working all the time. You're like struggling from paycheck to paycheck to give the highest quality care to these dogs. And you always come second. If, if they need something, they're going to get it. And they eat King salmon, you eat top ramen. You know, why do you even do this? It sounds almost miserable. And I'm not going to lie. There's been times I've been out there and I've said, I hate this, (laughs) but you can go for 10 days in the most wicked and miserable conditions but there's so much beauty out there at the same time. And when you're getting to the finish line, it's, it's a crazy experience and a crazy thing to be thinking, well, next year, when I do this, you totally forgot about all, all the hell that you just went through and all that's um, ringing in your ears is the beauty and the pictures that you can't get out of your mind is how amazing your dogs are and what a phenomenal experience that was. So it's, I, I imagine it's something like childbirth. It's just like, didn't wasn't that the most painful thing you've ever been through? But look what I got out of it. So it's it's an amazing experience. If anybody gets the opportunity just to try it, even if it is with the tour company, I highly recommend it. It's the dogs are high octane, full energy, and motivating. It's it's a, so much fun. Man, I, I kind of want to just end it there with all that passion. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of like what I'm trying to capture with this this whole podcast thing is is find those stories find the the sports where people are doing these things where you know they might be a little bit cuckoo in the head going and doing this um i think you guys i I was telling you about it you know type two fun you guys said this is insane enough it's type three fun 
<laughs> no, I, I'm also glad you brought up the wildlife thing because that was something I wanted to mention because I'm sure you've seen stuff that no one in the world will ever ever see, just like being in these trails that no one ever touches and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and even though we've both run the Iditarod over a dozen times, the same trail, it's never the same. It's it's always a different experience, whether whatever Mother Nature's throwing at you or that kind of thing. We've nev never driven the same dog team in a race twice. It's always changing positions just with that kind of thing. And yeah, so it's even though it's the same race, it's never the same. I love it. Uh, do you want to, you know, while we wrap up, just just plug your guys's website, you know, anything you guys want, you know, any final thoughts before we say say goodbye? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, we have an Instagram account to, at seeing double sled dog racing and um, it's a lot of dog pictures. So if, if the, you love dogs, you'll see a lot of fun stuff there. And we try to to make it a little uh, educational so you can see like what we're doing when we're cutting thousands of pounds of meat for the dogs to eat, why we do what we do and that kind of thing and race preparations and stuff like that. And we update it year round. So it's even though it's summertime and we're not running dogs every day, it's still a lot of dog stuff. And then we have a website, which is www.seeingdoublesled.racing.com. Um, and that is, you know, like a website with lots of dog pictures still and lots of information, our background and our sponsors. And our, our other sister, Kat, does a phenomenal job with the blog mm -hmm. every year mm -hmm. while we're out on the trail for Iditarod with lots of good inside information and experiences that um, you won't get by following the race any other way. So that's really a cool way to follow and there's also some ways that you can support the dogs on the teams if you want to to meet the dogs lots of good information there yeah and then we have a, a facebook athlete page for seeing double sled dog racing as well yeah I'll, I'll be sure to tag a lot of that whenever we release this and do the post it's your site's pretty pretty impressive i'm kind of glad that we didn't record yesterday because i got to dive in and look at all the content you guys got a lot of a lot of good stuff on there and then, but all uh, that goes to our sister cat she manages the website because yeah. i can't wrap my brain around stuff like that i don't <laughs> have time so she she does a phenomenal job with all that she'd be thrilled to hear that that's yeah that's great be sure to comp compliment her for me um and then i guess uh final thing yeah if you if you guys do listeners if you do follow them on instagram they were anna just did the connect uh and you were posting stuff the entire time it was really cool to just see even just the dogs running through the trails, you know, everything, them resting, whatever. I was getting a little amped up to record this because that was before I kind of followed a, a race along. Um, well, yeah, that's it. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I hope you guys enjoyed this and uh, we'll see what the listeners have to say. Yeah, thanks for having yeah, us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the High Quality Fun Podcast. If you guys enjoyed this show, please give us a follow. And if you have a good story or just want to say hi, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or YouTube. Thanks for listening.